Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be continuing. We're moving towards the middle part of this book. And tonight we're going to talk about one of the least controversial things we can talk about. We're going to talk about how Christians ought to interact with politics. So that'll be real uncontroversial and we'll be able to move on, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute, but we've got to set the basis for it to start with. And in fact, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, many scholars, many people that study the book of First Peter, consider that to be the focal point of the entire book. Consider it to be the turning point, the key verses, the verses that explain what the book is about. And it basically says that I urge you as aliens and temporary residents or strangers to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do evil, they may, by observing your good works, glorify God in a day of visitation. And so the, the central part of this book is that he's writing to a people who are persecuted, who feel ostracized, who feel that they have been um, left to, to wander on their own, that have feel like they've been disenfranchised. They are the people that society has forgotten. Now what he's telling them is, even in that kind of state, you need to live a life that will lead people to wonder about the God that you serve. It's this central portion of the text. In fact, it sounds a lot like, there's a, especially the last part of that in, chat, in verse uh, 12, sounds a lot like something Jesus said. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, So let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they do what? They glorify your Father in heaven. All right? Chapter uh, 2, verse 12 almost sounds like that. It says that live a life so when they see you, these guys that are trying to speak evil, trying to do evil, they will be so kind of impressed by who you are, by what you're doing, that they will come to glorify God in their day of visitation. We'll talk about that phrase in a minute. But one of the things that Peter continually does in this book, and does even in chapter 2, verse 11, is remind people who they are in Christ. If you were here last week, you remember we closed out with that phrase in verse 9 that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people specially for Him. His very special promise. His most prized possession. Well, Peter goes on talks a little bit more, but then in verse 11 he comes back again to remind them some of who they are. And the reason he wants to remind them who they are is because he's about to ask them to submit. In fact, submission is going to become a major theme in the next chapter or so of this book. And submission is one of those things that doesn't sit well in American culture. Because in American culture, we're taught that we ought to be able to, to make it, no matter who you are or what you've got, that you, you've got to make your own way. You've got to stand up for yourself. You've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God helps those that help themselves. Not biblical, but it's American. Right? And we have this idea. And submission is not part of that. In fact, we, we have, it's from the beginning. It's not something that's just come in America. In America, we, we did the Constitution and we were concerned when we did the Constitution that it wasn't complete. So they crafted Ten things to say at the beginning. Or, and what were those? First ten amendments were the Bill of Responsibilities, right? 
the Bill of Rights, what we have the right to do. These are our rights. And since that moment, people have talked about their rights. Stand up for yourself. Don't get run over. Don't let them take advantage of you. Peter says, submit. He's going to remind them before that of who they are because here's kind of a crazy idea. The more secure you are in who you are, the easier it is to come under the authority of somebody else. And he wants them to be confident in who they are. The first thing he says is, don't forget you're loved by God. Now, in my version, in verse 11, it says, dear friends, but that's not what the text really says. In fact, the text really says, does anybody have something different besides dear friends there, verse 11? Beloved. The, The text actually says those that are beloved and the understanding is by God. And he wants them to understand from the very beginning that they are loved by God. They don't have any reason to be loved by God. There's nothing within us that makes us lovable necessarily in the grand scheme of what God intends. But nevertheless, God loves us. He has chosen us. He has adopted those of us who are his believers. Eight times in Peter's letters, he talks about being loved by God. 1 Peter 2.11, 1 Peter 4.12, 2 Peter 1.7. 2 Peter 3 1, 2 Peter 3 8, 2 Peter 3 14 and 15, 2 Peter 3 17. He loves us because of not what we've done, but just because He loves us. And not because of who we are, but because of who He is and what Jesus has done for us. And what Peter wants him to realize is our love. Being loved by God ought to be the motivating factor in the way that we live our lives. We've talked about before the difference between obedience or doing something out of duty versus doing something out of devotion. Right? There's a difference. Some of you have jobs where you do things out of duty. Like this is what I have to do. Some of you have jobs where you do things out of devotion. This is what I get to do. There's a big difference between a have to do and get to do, right? In your life, in fact, if you want to know the things that kind of drive you, what are those things that you get to do that you love? Most of us are pretty good at listing the things we have to do. When I get home tonight, I have to get the dishes done. When I get home tonight, i got to get four kids to bed. When I get home tonight, I have to. Tomorrow morning, I have to. This weekend, we have to. What is in your life you get to? Well, Peter says, because of what God has done for you, living in obedience to the Lord is a get to, not a have to. You are beloved by Christ. In fact, John John 14:23 Jesus says, "If a man loves me, he will keep my commandments." Sometimes we read that and it's like, "If you love me, you'll do this." Because that's how we are with our kids sometimes. Maybe not those words, but that's not how I think Jesus means it. I think Jesus says like, "If you love me, that you're just going to want to do this." 
not only does he say we are God's beloved, but he says we are God's strangers, pilgrims, resident aliens. Well, he saw this a few weeks ago in the first chapter too, but the idea is that we are just simply passing through. He's setting this up because what he's wanting us to see is what he's about to ask them to do is to submit to things and people and organizations that on the surface it seems like we shouldn't have to submit to that. But God's point is, Peter's point is, it's only a temporary thing anyway. It's not that big of a deal. It's temporary. Uh, We were talking in the 4 o'clock service about there are all these old Southern Gospel songs about the temporary nature of life. Right now, now some some of them were more focused on the kind of the the I'll fly away that that the what's coming, but there were also song those songs about passing through. Uh, I, I told some people I, I remember um, back when I was in fifth grade, we did a, a fifth our fifth grade end of the year program was country music today, and we did in fifth grade at Jenny Bell Bomber Elementary School. That was our nickname, were the Bombers. Our uh, our mascot was a, I don't even know what kind of big bird carrying a bomb. It was built during World War II. We were the Bombers, all right? And so that it was the last year Jeannie Bell was in existence until they consolidated schools. But, but I remember we had this whole gospel or southern gospel section in that fifth grade musical. Um, I didn't sing any of those. I got old Dan Tucker and a Hey Good Looking. That's what I sang. But I remember we sang, uh, no, 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 we weren't, I wasn't singing old Dan, I wasn't singing Hey Good Looking to old Dan Tucker for sure. Old Dan Tucker went to town riding a goat leading a hound. I don't know if you know that or not. That's the first line of the song. Uh, It's amazing how I still, I could sing that to this day. No, I'm not, but I could. You're you're welcome. Um, I remember they sang, uh, Ain't Gonna Need This House No Longer. I ain't going to need this house no more. There's this whole sense in that time. Now, what's interesting is the people writing that, compared to us today, we think, man, they had it good. Why wouldn't they want to stick around a little bit? But we're strangers. We're just passing through. Illustration that I used in a sermon a while back that just has come back to me over and over again. I read it somewhere, and I'd never seen it this way before. And it was just this idea, would you redecorate a hotel you were going to be in for a week? No, because that's not my home. You wouldn't spend a lot of money. Let me rephrase that. Most sane people wouldn't spend a lot of money on a hotel room that you're going to leave in a week, right? And yet, how much do we spend taking care of stuff that's going to be gone in a flash? And in comparison to eternity, the time we spend on earth is much less than a week. It's a wisp, a puff of smoke in the air. Because you're temporary. So what I'm about to ask you to do, it's only for a short time, and it's not as significant as you would like to think. Then he tells them, not only are you loved by God, and it's your temporary residence in this place, You're also in a continual war, and this is what's interesting. It says that you're in a continual war with the flesh, and the idea is you're at war with yourself all the time. D.L. Moody, you know who D.L. Moody was? 
Moody Bible Institute, pastor up in Chicago in the 1800s. D.L. Moody once said, the most difficult man I've ever had to deal with is D.L. Moody. It's like that old Pogo uh, cartoon. I miss the comic strips. Anybody miss the comic strips? I don't get the paper. You know, the, it used to be two pages, and now it's like three, like three comic strips. Pogo, he said, we have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. He says you're at war with yourself, and you've got to lay that aside. And he's going to tell us why in a minute. But you've got to get rid of it. And the reason is because there are people continually watching. And he says basically, we are envoys, campaigners, ambassadors for our king. It's like we've been dropped behind enemy lines. And our goal is to convince people that we serve the true ruler. It's like we're campaigning for the Lord. Now, when I say that word, some of you get bad images because campaigning isn't always a positive experience. You know what campaigning is like, right? You can drive around right now. Everybody wants you to know who they're voting for. Well, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people. Signs in their yards and bumper stickers on their car. I always find that interesting. I know you got to get your name out and stuff, but I always find it interesting. I don't know anybody that's ever driven down the road and go, oh, wow, look at that car. That car is voting for Obama. I must vote for Obama. Or they're voting for Romney. I guess I ought to vote for Romney. Now, there are other be other reasons there, right? Well, Peter says you are an envoy for the Lord. He says this. You conduct yourselves honorably. The word honorably there is a great word. It doesn't just mean truthfully. It doesn't just mean honestly. What it means is to live a life of beauty. Of a life that is to be admired. That when people see it, they are taken back by how you've lived. Your life ought to be a masterpiece that stops people in their tracks because of what you've done for the Lord. What's something in your life that you've seen or experienced that just made you go, wow? Grand Canyon, standing on the edge of it. Yeah. What's that? Alaska? Yeah. Alaska? It doesn't have to be just nature, although nature is pretty. Anything else? You're beside the tomb of Christ. That's kind of an important place, right? Yeah, an amazing thought of all that happened there. There are those things in lives that just, and it's not just, even not just the grand things. There, there are moments when I'm watching a sporting event and somebody does something, I just go, wow, how did they, how did they do that? Or you're listening to somebody Speak, and you just go, man, how did how do they think of that? Yeah. We're not going to talk about Alabama football here. We're talking about godly things, all right? But, you know, just those moments. Uh, I was, it, it's crazy how even stuff, I mean, Joe talked about football. I was driving the other day, and for some reason they played the Music City Miracle. You know, you know, the throwback pass that Frank Wycheck threw to Dyson and on the radio, the guy, I remember watching it on TV, and I was just a young pup back then, you know. 
not as young as I'd like to think I was. What was that, 2000, I was in seminary back then. But watching it and just being like, man. And hearing it the other day, even got like, you know, just the, I got excited like it was happening all over again. Maybe because right now with Tennessee football, either Titans or Vols, we ain't got a lot to get excited about. People ought to be caught off guard by your lifestyle. That's what Peter says. So that they'll see it and they'll give praise to God on that day of appointment. There are a lot of questions about what day of appointment means. Some people think that it means that it's the, the end of time. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means that their lives will be so impacted by you that they will come to an understanding of who God is and they will have their own divine encounter with the Lord and turn their life over to Him. That your life can be a catalyst in leading people to the Lord. And in my 11 years of ministry, I've seen lives that were that, that matched a beautiful life with beautiful words and helped lead people to the Lord. Tragically, I've also seen lives of people that call themselves believers that convince people that it wasn't worth trying out. Peter says, let your life reflect who God is as beloved children of the Lord. It's a story from uh, several years ago, like 1805. That's several years ago, right? A couple of hundred. When there was some Indian tribes up in the New York area that were going to meet at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear from a white man about this Jesus they got there, and the guy that came was a guy named Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. And after the sermon he on Jesus, he gave him a chance to respond. And Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs, said this. He said, Brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree? You all read the same book. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. They are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. We may not get that eloquent of a speech from our co-workers or our friends or our neighbors or our children, but we have people all around us that are waiting, watching. And then Peter moves on to say, okay, now that we've set the foundation, here's what it means to live a holy life. Here are some practical areas that holiness shows up. And what I think is interesting, he doesn't start with morality stuff. Now, he's already mentioned getting rid of the the flesh kind of stuff. He doesn't start with morality as in, here's a list of do's and don'ts about various vices in our own culture. He doesn't start with that kind of stuff. He starts with government, politics. And everything we do should be for the glory of God and for the good of His kingdom. But Peter is careful here to point out, that Christians in society are representatives of Jesus and how we interact at every level advertises the virtues of God. 
I mean, we've all had those moments in our lives when we're watching television and we see someone who says they speak for Christians say something that we want to go, no, you do not. But the truth is, how we interact says a lot about who we are. And if we are believers in Christ, then it's how we interact that shows some things. As Christian citizens, we should submit to the authority vested in human government. Here's what it says. Verse 13. Submit to the human institutions you like. Is that what it says? Submit to the human institutions you agree with. Submit to human institutions that have people you voted for. Is that what it says? It says what? Submit to every, all, human institution because of the Lord. Here's the principle, and we'll get to it in just a minute about some specifics, but the principle is if you're in submission under the Lord, then you trust that He can work through whatever is going on in your world. And the moment you begin to think that God can't work in a community or a life or a nation or the world because of the leadership that they have, then you are then saying that leadership is more powerful than God. Now, that's not to say that nations or people or groups can't do things that God removes his hand of blessing from. But it does say that if you think God can't work because so-and-so's in office, then what you're saying is that so-and-so is more important, stronger than God. God's worked through some pretty bad guys. Right? Remember we talked about that with our Bible study a little while ago? The back of... God, you don't want to use the Babylonians. They don't even follow you. And God says, I'm going to use them. Here's the thing that's kind of interesting. He, he says, whether the emperor is supreme authority or the governors as those sent out to punish those who do evil, for it is God's will that you by doing good silence the ignorance of foolish people. As God's slave, live as free people. But don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What he's saying is there are times and places for you to disagree with particular laws, but it doesn't give you the right to disrespect your leaders. There are people in the Bible that give us examples. Remember Daniel and the three guys that didn't want to eat what the king said they had to eat? So they didn't eat what the king said they had to eat, right? But they never disrespected the king. If you look at those stories in Daniel, I mean, Daniel could be a textbook on civil disobedience. I don't think anybody's ever written that, but it could be. Because Daniel, they don't like the food, so they don't eat the food. Daniel's not going to bow down. Daniel's not going to pray what's got to be prayed. But each time they do that, they do it in such a way that by the end of it, the king is hoping they're right. You ever notice that in Daniel? What does the king say at the lion's den to Daniel? It says he runs the next morning and says, Oh, Daniel, I hope your God has saved you. For a king whose orders had just been denied and disregarded. So you know Daniel did it in a way that respected the authority of that king. Right? About when the church is just getting off the ground, Peter and the other apostles are preaching, and then they come and they're told by a Jewish council, you can't preach anymore. Well, they don't stop preaching 
but they also don't disrespect who's there. It's important to respect the office even if we don't respect the decisions or the laws that come. And that's a hard line to draw. And it's even harder in American politics where the issues have become the person. You know how we run campaigns in America, right? You don't attack the issues. You attack the person. And that's from both sides. That's not, I don't care if you Republican, Democrat, Green, Whig, reconstituted parties from the past, Tea Party, Coffee Party, whatever you are. The idea is we you attack people. As Christians, we should never attack people. We stand up for issues. There's a difference. He says, submit to every institution, whether to the emperor. Anybody have a clue who the emperor probably was during this time? Nero. No, he was so worried about Daniel. Yeah, if we lived a life that convinced them to be so interested in us. It would be interesting if the question to ask is not, is that... But the question is, are we living lives that are worthy of that concern? So when Peter writes this, the emperor is a guy named Nero. What do you know about Nero? He played with fire. Well, he played while fire went, right? And he persecuted a lot of Christians. You know, Rome burned while Nero was in charge. And you know, that's while he fiddled, right? I, I told Forkler, I don't know that he called it a fiddle, because that's what we got down here in the south. But he... When I hear fiddle, I think Charlie Daniels band. I don't know if Nero was playing Devil Went Down to Georgia, but uh, he was he was fiddling while Rome burned. All right, Rome burned. He had to have somebody to blame. You know who he blamed? Christians. Nero liked to have parties. He liked to have parties at night. When you have parties at night, you got to have a way for your guests to get there to be able to see. He had to have torches, and he wasn't happy with the torches he had, and so he rounded up some people that were believers in Christ and lit them on fire as the torches to the party. That's who Peter tells them to submit to. And we have people today that have real problems submitting in this time, but I hadn't seen Christians lit on fire leading the way to the White House anytime lately. So when we say, well, but they didn't understand what we are dealing Yeah, they did. We don't understand what they were dealing with. And Peter says, submit to the emperor. He names him specifically to a group of people that were scared every day of their lives that they were going to be imprisoned for their faith. That they could lose their life for their faith. They weren't worried about losing an election. They were about losing their church, their friends, their neighbors, their own life. And he says, respect, submit. It's not even the word respect, is it? It's submit. Live in such a way that comes right after that. Live in such a way that they'll see who you are and they will glorify the Lord. 
there's this idea out there that, that we talk about the American idea and that part of being a Christian in America is to stand up for what we believe. And I agree with that. I, I absolutely agree with that. But sometimes we have to watch the way in which we stand up so that we don't turn people away from the faith instead of inviting them in. We must never lose perspective of what our ultimate allegiance is. It's God's will that by doing good, not by winning the argument, not by stuffing the ballot box, but by what? Doing good. That doesn't mean I'm telling you not to go vote. Go vote. Participate. Be a part of the discussion. But that's not the primary way that we influence the world around us. Silence the ignorance of foolish people. As God's slaves, live as free people, but not free people that conceal evil. Honor every one. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, but honor the emperor. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. A couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, we heard a message from Jonathan Edwards, read by James McDonald. And this week, as I was doing some research, I found um, Jonathan Edwards' uh, views on Christians interacting with society. Now, Jonathan Edwards died over 250 years ago. So I wouldn't call this contemporary. All right? Anybody alive when Jonathan Edwards was alive? Anybody? Hitting 280, 290 around here? No. It's been a long time, right? I mean, we're talking... Jonathan Edwards died in 1758. Not 17... You know, 1776, kind of important date in the history of America. We're talking about before the Declaration of Independence. Here's what he said. So think about this. He's in a time when people are wondering how you interact with King George or over King over across the place and the colonies and we're getting all that. First of all, Christians have a responsibility to society beyond the walls of the church. We must never decide to be isolated from the world in which God has put us in. That's the bunker mentality. We're good. We're going to just cluster, you know, get in here, get in the bunker, and we're not going to worry about the world. Number two, this is interesting. Christians should not hesitate to join forces with non-Christians in the public to work towards common moral goals. Number three, Christians should support their guns, but be ready to criticize them when occasion demands. A cautious respect for government. Number four, Christians should remember that politics is comparatively unimportant in the long run. Comparatively unimportant in the long run. I remember as a child that there was a particular election that the guy I wanted to win did not win. And my brother wanted the other guy to win who won. And he called me and I said, all I know is this this country is about to go to hell in a handbasket. I was a teenager, just that's as vile as I got, all right? Whatever the results in November are, you're going to hear people use phrases like that. It's over. 
I don't understand how we could elect that, whichever one it is. You'll hear from one side or the other, that man. Okay? Now, in the particular circles that most of us run, if one guy in particular wins, you'll hear more than the other guy. Okay? In fact, if you're on Facebook, you're hearing it already. It's relatively unimportant in the long run. Long run here, we're talking about eternity. Relatively unimportant. Western Christians have gotten off path at this point. Christian's responsibility is first to the Lord, then to his family, then to the brotherhood, then to his nation. Fourth at best. Too many of us have confused responsibilities. Peter, living in the most powerful, largest empire up until this point, looks down the road and realizes that at some point it's going to dissolve sooner or later, but the kingdom of God is forever. The kingdom of God is more important than any election or government or nation. In fact, Jonathan Edwards number five was... Christians should beware of national pride, of putting too much stock in your national identity over your kingdom identity. You know what? We live in a world where this is easier to get rid of and easier to reinforce than it's ever been. All it took for me was one trip to Belo Horizonte, Brazil to realize that there are really good believers other places in the world living for the Lord and that we're bonded more by the kingdom of God than by our national descent. But it's also easy because we see it all to get that idea of we're the best, nobody's as good as us, and it doesn't matter. We've got to protect us. Until the Lord comes, we are obliged to put our pride on the back burner put our trust in the kingdom of God, which transcends geopolitical borders. The gospel of Christ levels us all into an international community of those who follow Christ, and the church deserves our allegiance above our birthplace. And the last thing Jonathan Edwards said is, Christians should always be concerned about taking care of those who have less than we have. He said if there's one consistent theme throughout the entire Bible about how we act as the people of God is we take care of the less fortunate. 250 years ago he used some of those points and they sound just as contemporary today as they did then. Now we have to realize that when Peter said to submit to every human authority he was writing to some people who would submit with their lives. So he's not talking about trivial kind of matters here. He's not talking about tax rates. He's talking about lives. And he says, you submit for the glory of God. The Christian is called to follow Jesus. And as he knew, and as Peter knew, and as Peter's life would testify, 
That path sometimes leads to the cross. Those who follow Jesus sometimes end up with Him in suffering. In fact, the next section that Peter is going to write about talks about some of the dangers of living as aliens in a society not built for Christians. What has happened in America over the last 200 years is we lived in a bubble for a while. This was not normal Christian existence where you were able to say whatever you wanted to say about Christ, do whatever you wanted to do about Christ. I said that about the fifth grade school. I mean, we think, well, that's how it's always been and always should be. Well, the truth is, in America for a long time, that's how it was. But in the rest of the world, it's never been like that. We're fortunate. We're blessed. But at the same time, what we see is in Scripture and in life and in anecdotal evidence that people who follow the Lord in the most difficult situations sometimes live those beautiful lives that let people see the importance of Christ. The question we have is, is our following Jesus based on our comfort and our existence in a comfortable place? Or is it built on following Him? The reason it's easy to submit to authorities that seem evil is because we've already submitted to the authority that is always good and we know he's in ultimate control and we trust him by submission let's pray